Good evening to everyone, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Manuel Penades, and I'm a researcher in the Transnational Law Project here at LSC. And I appear on behalf of Dr. Janka Heinstekam, who is on a sabbatical leave this term, um, in order to, first of all, welcome to LSE for some of your students here, and to welcome you as well to the events that the Transnational Law Project has been organizing for for this year. Um, tonight's session is about basic concepts of arbitration, if I'm right. Um, and it's part of a series of seminars that we have organized in order to um, allow you to get acquainted with some of the fundamental principles of international arbitration. Um, and with the hope that it, that will facilitate your introduction into the LLM course called Advanced Issues international commercial arbitration which will be held next term so I do encourage you to come to these seminars as often as you can and I also encourage you to go to, to visit or the web page of the, of the project where you can find podcasts of previous events and I believe that tonight's seminar will be recorded and keep that fine I was warned about that <laughs> And I will, uh, you will also find a list of the forthcoming events for this year, all of them very interesting and very useful to all of you, especially if you're taking this uh, module on advanced issues of commercial arbitration, and all of them delivered by some of the leading professionals in the arbitration field. And in this vein, let me introduce Jan Paulson, who will be our speaker tonight, and also next week. Well, little, if any, introduction is required for Jan, but for some of you who are not very familiar with arbitration, let me say that he's our centennial professor here at LSE, and he's a, been a very active member of the Transnational Law Project as well for the last couple of years. And he co-heads the International Arbitration and Public International Law Group at Freshfields, and he is, without any doubt, one of the most eminent mm. practitioners in arbitration, both as counsel for parties and as an arbitrator. Mm. Mm. Simultaneously to all this, he contributes to the debate through conferences and to publications. But um, I won't go into much more detail. I hand over to you, but before that, thank you, everyone, for coming tonight. I encourage you to do so in future events, and thank you for the effort of being here tonight. That's very good, but who are these people? <laughs> oh, they are, well, this is a public event. Yes, so, so apart from those who are straggling off the street. <laughs> <laughs> Some of them might be interested in arbitration as well. <laughs> <laughs> it's a warm place. So, so the students are? Yeah, LLB well, students could be here as well, but mainly LLM students taking advanced, uh, the, the module of advanced issues in international commercial arbitration in the second term. So that's why they are interested, and given that Jan is not sabbatical this and this term we decided to organize these sessions to prepare them for that. Very good. So it's this evening and next week, Wednesday is it? Yes. Same time. Um, going to do a little uh, bit of experiment with you people because you're a student at LSE and therefore brilliant and you learn things extremely quickly and uh, you have acute minds. So we'll do a whole course of arbitration in two evenings. <laughs> and at the end of next week's lecture, I will give you an exam on the entire subject of Introduction to International Arbitration. 
and that will be a real exam. Diogo, did you do arbitration boot camp? Uh, no. With me. Oh, well, you can do it now. Yeah. You missed, how did you miss that? All right. Well, so this, this is actually, I will cram into these two hours an entire course on arbitration. And at the end of the lecture next week, I will give you an exam, which was a real exam uh, in a full course on international arbitration. And you can grade yourselves and see how well you did. To achieve this, I will speak very slowly. <laughs> Otherwise, it, you know, it, it just, uh, we don't have the time if I go too fast. Uh, and when we get to the end of it, I'm, I'm quite serious. I will ask you a series of questions. Uh, they will be multiple choice. And you can just grade yourselves and see how you did compared with people who did an entire course. I have this theory that people can learn a lot faster than they really think. And that a lot of courses just go on and on and there are diminishing returns, and the stuff you're going to get, you get really fast anyway. I think uh, if you don't find international arbitration an interesting subject, you ought to revise your career options uh, and think about what, uh, what other line of activity you might go into apart from law. Because if you don't like international arbitration, I don't see how you can be interested in the law. <laughs> international arbitration is magic. I'll prove it to you. You'll all agree with it within about two minutes. If two people in this room, you're all students from all over the world, have a potential dispute, let's say one of you is going to sell something to another one, now, relatively expensive. And so you, you haven't seen the thing yet because the seller is going to go get it from his own country and bring it here and sell it to you. And that's that. So you're thinking, well, you, the buyer, are thinking we ought to have a bit of a contract and something might go wrong. You know, what I've been told about this thing might not be what's actually delivered or it might be fine when, you get, when it gets here, but it will break down and I want my money back because I'm paying half down. You know, typical sort of stuff. And you come from different countries. And what are you going to do if you have a dispute? You can agree that, or you can, you can say, well, if there's a dispute, we'll go to court. But where in the world are you, go, are you going to go to court? As you come from different countries, and you might know something about English courts, and you might realize that that's a very expensive proposition. And at the end, what are you going to do with the judgment? Once you have won, either one has won the case, so that the seller, in that hypothesis, is owed money, or the buyer is entitled to get back the money. And what are you going to do with it now, as your opponent, erstwhile friend, has gone back to Uruguay? Uh, well, you can uh, have an international arbitration. How do you do that? Um, let me do the fast version. Uh, Two of you deciding that you might have a dispute will take out a piece of paper and scribble on the back of it, you know, contract for the sale of such and such. And if we have a if we have a dispute about this, we will have an arbitration, and our dispute will be finally decided. Will be finally decided by the first person we meet when we open the door and go outside, who's um, 18 years old or over and has not been deprived of civic rights due to criminal activity or 
mental incompetence. And lo and behold, there is a dispute. And you walk outside, and the first person has the bad judgment of actually agreeing to be your arbitrator. You have an agreement to arbitrate in writing. And that person listens to you for 10 minutes. Here's your evidence, here's your arguments, and decides who's right. And takes another piece of paper and writes an award. That is an award in writing. That award, here's the magic, is more powerful on this planet than practically any decision of the Supreme Court of any country. Because that award is enforceable throughout most of the world. 150 countries have signed a treaty, which most of you have heard about, uh, under which each of those 150 countries agrees to enforce arbitral awards, which are derived from agreements to arbitrate in writing, leading to the enforcement of the final award, the second piece of paper. And that's all there is to it. Not quite. That's how it works. <laughs> um, do you think I'm kidding? United States has a very powerful court system. Uh, American judges are famous. I've spent most of my life in France. Uh, Supreme Court judges in France are not famous. Even veteran lawyers not like myself, I know the name maybe of two of the myriad judges who sit on the French Cour de Cassation, which decides 12,000 <coughs> cases a year because they can deny none. Everyone has a right to go to the French Court of Cassation as a right. And there are no hearings, and the decisions are usually about three lines. The US Supreme Court is a little bit different. There's nine of them, and they hear two or three percent of all the cases that come, uh, if it's even that, uh, that are presented to them for possible hearing or appeal. So these are Olympian people, and I, even living in France, I can give you the names of all nine of them. That's how famous the US, the US Supreme Court judges are. Well, that guy who agreed to be your arbitrator is more powerful than those nine guys. Because the United States of America does not have a single treaty for the enforcement of court judgments. Whereas 150 countries have agreed to the international arbitral awards are enforceable as though they were a decision of final resort in their countries. Okay? I think that's pretty bad. What? Let's think about what these little bit about what these arbitration agreements are like. Uh, I told you about a deal that two of you are going to make, which hasn't happened yet, and so you you think that. You just want to be sure that if there is a problem, you will have this thing which I just now told you about and it sounds like a good thing. You have a quick, inexpensive, and supremely effective decision. So you like it and you're going to sign up for it. Uh, even though you don't have a dispute, you think you might have a dispute. What if you already have a dispute? If this already happened, and now you're arguing, and one is, I'm going to sue you. So I'm going home to Uruguay. Well, I'm going to come and get you in Uruguay. And, and this, this is getting a bit unpleasant. And so you said, well, we've heard about this arbitration. Could you agree to arbitrate that existing dispute? Yes. Of course. Is that 
How do you compare those two agreements, sort of philosophically? The agreement to have an arbitration clause about a future dispute, and the one where you already know exactly what you're arguing about. Anyone have an idea? One is called an arbitration agreement, and the other one is called an exhibition agreement. All right. One is called an arbitration agreement, and the other one is called this. Sometimes you hear it's called a special submission agreement or a compromissory agreement, um, and it refers to a dispute that has already uh, risen. But that's nomenclature. So we, now we know that. Good. You are already getting somewhere. Uh, but philosophically, what's the difference between the two? Uh, more specific than the other. Yeah. Which is like better than the other? Which is to be encouraged? Which is more safe and secure? Which is, you know, things like that. It's almost impossible to reach the second one, actually. Which one? Uh, the, post, uh, the, the agreement which, uh, uh, which is concluded after the dispute has commenced. Ah, that's interesting. So that I'm not sure that's philosophical, but that's very that's very interesting anyway. You say that's that's hard to agree when there are part when there are two parties. Who right. One. So we we we've already we already have a disagreement. So what are the chances that we're going to agree about anything? And the moment I say let's have an arbitration, and it will be the arbitrator will be the first person we meet when we go outside there, and he will say, ha. Huh, you're a Centennial professor already at LSE. I don't think we're going to do that. We're going to go over to my favorite bar, the first guy we meet. Okay, so we're already disagreeing <laughs> about what kind of arbitration we want to have, because I think that's your bar, not mine. Um, <coughs> so you think there are very few special submission agreements? Well, uh, they're almost fewer. impossible. You said no, not uh, they're fewer than uh, than, the than the arbitration clause uh, in the contract. Well, you said it's almost impossible. Do you think it's almost impossible to have arbitration clauses in contracts? Uh, in contracts, they are, they are quite similar. They are they are quite common. But Why? Stuff. What's the um, difference? The difference is that the, the parties are friendly when uh, when they agree on the in the first case. When they when they with, when they negotiate a contract, they they can agree on the on the self, on the procedure for settlement of disputes. But after the dispute has uh, has already arise, arose. Uh, Okay. Well, when they have a contract, as you say, they like each other, and above everything, they're not going to have a dispute. Yeah. They just put this in, you know, in case. This is not what's going to happen, of course. And probably in 90% of contracts, if not 95, if not 99, uh, there isn't a dispute. I don't know how many contracts you all have signed. I've, I've probably signed hundreds in my life, and I'm, you know, I guess I give up even. <laughs> So uh, that makes it easier. We know that. Now, what if what if you were um, the benevolent dictator of a country, and you heard that there were these two kinds of agreements circulating out there? And this is really powerful stuff because of this New York Convention, which makes these awards so powerful. Um, how do you look at these? You know, this is the rare one, the really hard one to to, to get, and the other one in the contract, which people sign very easily. So now you're thinking about social policy. Is there any difference in the degree of um, favor that you look at these types of agreements? What do you suppose? Which one would you be more ready to think is a good thing and I will protect? I'm not going to interfere with arbitration. I think the former one is to be uh, favored. Which is the former? Where you have 
before a dispute has arisen, we have agreed to a dispute resolution mechanism. Because as you just said, once a dispute arises, it becomes difficult to agree to anything at all in future. Yes, but uh, let's, let's think now. Now I'm assuming I'm the benevolent dictator. These two types of agreements do exist. And one is this special submission agreement, let's call it that, um, which, trust me, there aren't very many of them for the reason we just heard. And then there are these clauses and contracts all over the place. People don't even notice. Okay? So we just have them. Now, which do you look at with greater favor of the two? And if you can think of any reasons why. Well, in the first one, you don't, you don't already know the object of the dispute. True. And, uh, well, you know something about it. It's going to be about you know, the, the contract for the refrigerator I'm going to sell. So, it's right? Yes. And, um, uh, a benevolent dictator would not like uh, this uh, noble contract because he wouldn't want. Uh, I mean, he doesn't care what the previous government did and what contracts they made. And he wants just the issues or the contracts which he has made to be. Well, the previous government, we're talking about private people signing these arbitration agreements. But yeah, I, 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 I have a very strong suspicion that you're right. Because I, I know that in countries that are very suspicious of arbitration, countries don't have to accept arbitration. Countries don't have to sign this international treaty. Uh, and countries could even say, we don't, we don't recognize arbitration. Arbitration awards are unenforceable. That would be very hostile. But countries can do that. That's what Parliament is right or the benevolent dictator. So one can notice that as we go from countries that are hostile to arbitration all the way to the other extreme of countries that love arbitration and protect it and respect it and uphold whatever arbitrators do to the ultimate extreme, if we look along this continuum, the first step away from starting to accept arbitration is guess what? Accepting arbitration under special submission agreements. Because it's hard to do. Because these parties had a dispute and if they nevertheless were able to agree to arbitration, they must have really thought about it. So they really meant it and they, you think they understood what they were doing because they're, they're facing the dispute. So that's pretty solid, and we, if they do that, we'll agree to it. So if you look at the arbitration laws of countries that were hostile to arbitration, not many left in the world, uh, but some several generations ago, you will see that they, will, they would have laws about arbitration, and they would respect arbitration with regard to existing disputes. So it's a big step to say you can also have arbitration agreements with regard to future disputes, because people tend to sign those things rather easily, and the scope is very large of what you could put into it, uh, and so that's, that's where we start to test how favorable the world is to arbitration. Today this is absolutely standard, and let's think a little bit about why that is so. Did you have a comment? I always think uh, we go for an uh, arbitration agreement because it is independent of the uh, contract, independent of the agreement. <coughs> so the arbitration agreement would subsist even if the, uh, uh, the, the, the agreement is invalid. Yes. 
And what, what, how does that relate to the two types of arbitration agreements we've talked about so far? I'm not sure everybody in the, in, in the class understood that business about arbitration agreements being independent of the contracts where, where they are. Just put that in the back of your mind. We'll talk about that next week. This is good because it's not that simple and you'll be tested on it the very evening. So, <laughs> um, How about what you can agree to arbitrate about? You know, that might also be relevant to this idea of what type of arbitration, prospective or existing disputes. Do you suppose we can have an arbitration about a tort? You hit me you know, with your bicycle or something, I broke a leg, no, I'm, I, I have a claim against you. So now it's a claim and you, you said, okay, all right, I hit you, but uh, you know, 10,000 pounds, no way. So we have a dispute about, about the quantum. Can we agree to arbitration? It's a tort claim. Could we have an arbitration agreement to arbitrate future tort claims between the two of us? It's kind of, but let's just think of it. It's kind of hard to imagine. I don't know you. I don't know who is going to hit me next week. <laughs> um, but maybe I do know one of you, and you're kind of dangerous, and you're sort of around the places where I go a lot, so that's it. Let's sign an agreement say that whatever bad, whatever tort one of us commits to the other, we'll have an arbitration. How does that sound? Does that sound kind of unlikely, doesn't it? But contracts are absolutely classical. Let's think about why international arbitration has become so prevalent and has sort of swept through the world and become this magical thing which it is today. The best way to do that is to consider an example. Now I'll take, I'll, I'll take an example from Europe which is sort of, sort of a bad example because Europe today has become one kind of one legal space with the Brussels regulation you know what I'm talking about, that, that it's all, even though there are different court systems, uh, there are certain rules about each country, assuming that every other country is perfectly civilized and you bow to the jurisdiction of the country first seized and you respect the judgments. Europe is a very unusual space uh, for that reason. That has not stopped European businesses from agreeing to arbitration clauses, because guess what? Even if, even if the European governments all love each other, entirely trust each other, and even if Denmark is totally convinced that every court in Portugal is absolutely fair, <laughs> Danish businessmen and Portuguese businessmen, you know, they have different opinions about each other's courts. So, let's imagine that we have Finnish and French, two Fs. So, here's a Finnish business which makes the world's best scissors. Fantastic scissors. High, high margins. It's so everybody, when you just see them, you want these scissors. And they're very successful. They're selling them in Sweden. They're selling them in Poland. And now the, the Finnish company wants to sell them in France, okay? where is a market which they haven't exploit, uh, explored yet. And they've done very well everywhere else. So one step back. International business transactions, any business transactions, why do we need to this is like baby questions, but sometimes they're interesting. Why do we need to think about law if we're involved in business transactions? 
to define under whose system of law the dispute is actually going to be heard under, whether it's one of the parties or an independent country. But even if we're both in the same country, why, why do we even think about it? After all, uh, if I'm worried about your performing the contract, I will approach you. There's a nice book you've got there. I have 20 pounds, and I will approach you with my bill, and I'll hold out my hand, and I don't trust you at all. And at some point, I've got my hand on your book, and you've got your hand on my 20 pounds, and we're done. Who needs the law? Cash and carry. And that's how our forefathers you know, did you know, a few shells for your the deer that you shot in the forest and so forth. That would be awful if we were stuck with that. And the international transactions that take place today, major billion dollar infrastructure, let's go to the absolute extreme, gas pipelines. It cost $10 billion to make this new pipeline from Turkmenistan now, through, I don't know, whatever republics whose names I can't pronounce, going to China, which is a huge market. $10 billion pipeline. How long will it take you to make enough profits out of the gas transported? Taking a risk of market price and everything else, and blowouts of terrorism and so forth. How long will it take whoever built that pipeline to get back the $10 billion? A little bit longer than this, okay? Five years, 10 years, 20 years? Probably more like 20 years. So we're going to have enormous contracts. And forget all, all about the construction contracts and loans and, and, and all the banks that are behind this. Just look at the basic thing. The ultimate owner of this pipeline needs 20 years to amortize a multi-billion dollar investment. How are you going to get people to do that unless there is some strength in a contract? Unless you can rely on a contract? How can you rely on contracts in this evil world? So, back to the Finns and the, and the French. <coughs> Why isn't this... You know, here are my scissors, you give me mine? The people who are negotiating are the Finnish scissors company and a French distributor who says, I'm a very clever fellow, I know everybody, I know all this, I know retail like nobody's business, I can distribute your scissors. And now, they're negotiating a contract. Why do they care about the reliability of the contract? What's the risk involved? Yeah? It's the whole business, or at least that transaction at stake. The What's the transaction? The scissors to be sold. I'm going to, I, you order my scissors, I sell them to you, and you sell them in France, and hey, I hope you have a profit margin. What's the problem? Why, why, why do we need to worry about... Maybe the scissors aren't that great and you need some kind of security to ensure that even if they're not sold the way that they were initially supposed to be sold, you'll get paid. How, you're the French guy. How are you going to sell these scissors in France? Well, through other outlets, I hmm? Other outlets. You're going to advertise. You're going to train a sales force. You're going to set up little you know, websites, and you're going to be running around, you're going to send people driving around to all the department stores and talking and talking and you know, you're out a couple of hundred thousand euros before you said anything about these finished scissors. You'll contact the retailer. Well, all of these things cost money. This is an investment. He might even have French headquarters of this Finnish scissors company. So that's a bit of a risk, isn't it? I mean, you're 200,000 euros out, and you're counting on amortizing, like the gas pipeline, you're counting on amortizing these 200,000 euros off a contract which is 
going to have to be performed for a while until you've got back the money. So what do you want in the contract? <coughs> this is not a business course, but we got to think about what, why it is that we need to protect the contract. What, what? Get the scissors. Hmm? You to need get to get the scissors. What else? They need to be the scissors that I wanted them to be. Yes. What else? Exclusive hmm? rights. Don't you want that? You don't want me to finish guys selling, you know, like once you have run around with your sales force and spent your 200,000 euros and everybody in France is longing for my scissors, I'll just sell them. Yeah, you, you take some, you tuck some, let's see how this is. Right? You want an exclusivity. I'm the Finnish company and you say, oh, more. Exclusivity? More? More? contract. So I want monopoly. <laughs> what do I want? I'm looking at you. What am I thinking? You want to sell the most amount of scissors you can hmm? in all of you. You want to sell the most amount of scissors. Of course. And so what, why am I worried about you? Because I might get the monopoly but then I might not perform and then you might be able to sell your amazing scissors. Like you, 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 you talk good but you know. <laughs> that's, that's, that's an opportunity cost. I give you a five-year contract, and you know, after one year, you're not filling your sales quotas, and I have an opportunity cost. And some other guy shows up, and I just know, why did I meet this guy first? I mean, this is a guy who really knows. So I don't want to give you five years. I want to give you as little as possible. So that's the negotiation. And once we agree to whatever it is, you know, five years, minimum quota per year of so many scissors, I agree that they will be quality scissors. Um, if you don't sell the quota, if at the end of two years you haven't kept up, I can rescind the contract, you, know, you have bells and whistles, all little things like that. And we want all of that to be protected in a contract, which is going to be enforceable. And I'm finishing your French. I still love speaking English with you. And want to hear a Finnish accent? <laughs> <laughs> we speak a little English. <laughs> I'm, I'm Swedish, so I'm mean with those people. Um, so you agree, we agree to write a contract in English. The best we can. We're, we're small companies. Might not be the greatest English. We don't have legal departments. I'm a little scissors making company and you've got your, you don't have your staff yet. So we're all there with our dreams and we write something in improved pidgin English. But we mean it. And this. These are stakes for us. And if it works well, this is good business and it's international business and this happens a thousand times a day all over the world. What are we going to do? Because I'm worried that if he doesn't meet his quota, he's got to respect the contract and when I rescind the contract, he should stop. And he should not start suing the next guy I appoint in his place and, or suing me because in France, because I'm not delivering scissors anymore. And, you know, we have all these things that, that we're worried about each other and that could be uh, grounds for dispute. Of course, we don't think it's going to happen and that's why we're ready for arbitration or whatever. But, you know, what if, especially because we're in an international context? All right, so now we've negotiated all this stuff and we get to the end and each one of us is worried about 
being able to rely on this contract. And I'm in Finland and he's in France. And what's going to happen if there's a dispute? He hasn't met his quota. He has to return all the, all the scissors he hasn't sold. And now he doesn't want to do it. Or I found a better looking guy and, you know, <coughs> I've just welched. And you want to sue me because of the lost profits. Okay. Where, what do we put in the contract about this? What could we do? Get back to basics before I start talking about arbitration. What could we do? What do I want to do? What's my gambit? What do I propose when I come with my Finnish Pigeon English contract? What does it say when you get to the very end about forum choice clause? It says the courts of Finland. And I show it to you and you heard me, heard me, you heard me talking to my wife in Finnish, you know, that you, you, you know that if you hear that stuff in court, you're not going to know what's happening. So you're, you, you, you don't know the Finnish courts and you're not interested in it. Uh, and so you will say, look, I'm a French entrepreneur, I'm a French businessman, I'm selling scissors in France. That's what I know, I'm a French distributor. You're coming to France, you should, uh, this, this will be your spiel to me. You should accept that we go to the French courts, I think. My lawyers don't speak French. I've heard French courts are kind of weird, and I'm worried about hometown justice, and no, 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 I'm not going to trust it. So we're not going to have a contract, are we? But further, why don't I want the Finnish courts? Let's assume we have a dispute. The thing I'm worried about is that I'm suing him. I'm not too worried about him suing me. I'm worried that my rights have not been respected. So then I have to go to Finland and present my case in front of a Finnish judge. I can't use my usual lawyer. I have to find how do I find a lawyer in Finland? How do I know he's any good? How do I know he's not going to, you know, be really hard on me? Now, now you have a problem, this is gonna cost you a lot. Um, I get in front of the judge and I'm going to testify about all the bad stuff that he did in French. Find an interpreter who can go from French to Finnish. You know, I don't know if he's interpreting very good, but the judge looks like he's sleeping. <laughs> and the judge is not looking at me as I am going on in great French and I'm explaining how this guy just did, you know, he was a nasty guy and he just didn't do anything right. And the judge is not looking at me because he doesn't, he, he just hears a bunch of French. He's looking at the interpreter who looks totally bored and has a very monotonous voice and the judge is just kind of waiting for it to be over. And then he gets up there speaking Finnish. <coughs> He points at me and he just said, This happened, this happened. And the judge goes, He looks at me. <laughs> I don't think I want to be in the Finnish courts, right? This is reality. So, what are we going to do? We're going to have an arbitration clause, aren't we? We're going to agree that there's going to be an arbitration in English. In, pick a place, Geneva. Under the rules of the International Chamber of Commerce. Right? You know this is what's going to happen. What do... Do we like English? Do I want to have a case in English? Do I want to testify in English? But he doesn't either. <laughs> <laughs> so it's fair. It's equal. I don't want to go to Geneva. Neither does he. ICC? Do I, I don't know anything about it. Do I like it? I have no clue. But I don't think he does either. So we don't like it. Here's like one of the first big secrets of arbitration. 
You don't have to like it. It's very successful, irrespective of whether people like it or not. It's what we can agree on. That's the great secret of the success of international arbitration. You will have endless seminars around the world, for those of you who are interested in this subject, where I think there's a bit less of this now because it's, it's, in, it's incredibly tedious. People can't think of a subject, so they think of a subject. And they, here's the endless one you hear again and again and again. Arbitration versus litigation. It is just boring beyond belief. So you have somebody who says, I'm in favor of litigation. I'm in favor of arbitration. That is a legitimate subject if we're talking about the same country. So we can have a Swedish conference in Sweden, and we're all Swedes, and we talk about whether we like arbitration or litigation. Swedish arbitration involving only Swedish people versus Swedish litigation involving only Swedish people. That's a good subject, and we can have a genuine discussion about that. But the two of us cannot have a discussion between Finland and France about litigation versus arbitration because we're not talking about the same thing. Each of us will agree that we, you already know what we like. Each of us likes litigation. French for me, Finnish for him. It's the dialogue of the deaf. It's, it's, it's a ridiculous subject internationally because we're not comparing two things, we're comparing three things. So arbitration is chosen because it's the second tolerable thing for each of us. And so that's what we agree to do. Otherwise, we won't sign a contract. That's the reality. I won't sign a contract with it. I will not sign a contract agreeing to finish courts. I just won't do it. The risk is too big. Okay, but international arbitration was the same for him. And you know, we'll see what happens. So that's what small businesses do. That's what large businesses do. Large businesses know what it is. And they know whether they want to go to Geneva or whether they want to go to, uh, to Amsterdam. And they have some ideas about the difference. And they know whether they like the International Chamber of Commerce or something else. But that's all refinements. The basic thing is the situation we have just, we have just uh, thought about. Um, those of you who have thought about <coughs> Let's leave the special submission agreements behind because they're so unusual. That's, that's not really uh, the thing that we're talking about. Um, just before we uh, leave the subjects behind uh, of arbitration versus litigation, this might interest some of you. What do the people in Sweden think about arbitration versus litigation? I'll just, just trust me. In Sweden, they really like arbitration. So it, there is no commercial contract that I have ever seen in Sweden that doesn't contain an arbitration clause. It's just a cultural thing. It, it just happened. Years and years went by, and this is the way it is. So if I, we're all Swedes, I'm a Swedish businessman, you're all Swedish, I, sh I present to you a draft contract which doesn't contain an arbitration clause. What kind of a guy is this? <laughs> you want to have, you know, Swedish people are kind of shy now. You want to air our troubles like dirty linen in public? No way. So the culture in Sweden is that if you're a decent human being, if you're an honest person who does not intend to breach a contract, and if by you know, God forbid it ever happens, you're going to have this little private thing, it's going to be a gentle, nice sort of thing. That's the Swedish culture. 
Now, can anybody imagine some of the consequences in Sweden of this sort of great love of arbitration? Think laterally. What? You have less case law. Yeah. And? Courts will have less work. And the consequence of that? Judges aren't that good. <laughs> <laughs> you now, like, you have a, hundred, you know, a million crown dispute, that's uh, 80,000 pounds. Oh, we have a big case this month. <laughs> 80,000. That must be, that it's because it was a weird contract, but for some reason, they, it was a word processor glitch. The arbitration clause dropped off. <laughs> and you think about it. Very weird. It's unusual that that happens. Switzerland. You think it's the same country. Switzerland, Sweden, you know, nice, stable, good governments, nice people, very rich countries, and you know, all good laws, good everything. You don't know the name of the president, right? Sweden, the king, you don't even know that. Um, Switzerland, opposite. Switzerland, you know, is a great home for international arbitration. Maybe Europe's leading country for international arbitration. The Swiss, among themselves, don't do arbitration. Why? I don't know. It's cultural. It just happened that way. <laughs> so the Swiss courts, you know, the Swiss, I, I know one thing, the Swiss say, hey, I'm a taxpayer, I pay that judge, why am I going to pay somebody else? <laughs> so um, Swiss contracts will not say anything about arbitration, and they will go to the local courts. And I've been, I've spent a lot of time in Swiss courts, and yes, yes, they do a nice job, very commercially minded, they tend to read the contracts and understand the contracts and listen to the witnesses and it doesn't take very long and it's all pretty good. And the judges, there is case law, judges know what they're doing, and the Swiss are really happy. And so the paradox is that both Sweden and Switzerland are great venues for international arbitration, even though the local ethos in one country is very favorable to arbitration and the other one, they actually don't do it. Great paradox. What are the types of international arbitration that we can agree to now. I said the International Chamber of Commerce, but let's try to think systematically about it. Independent arbitration? What is that? Uh, arbitration which is not held uh, according to the rules of a certain center or established center that, uh, let's say, appointed um, people who are not arbitrators which are ascribed to it. Very well, and somebody else will help you with some words. Ad hoc is, is you're sort of heading in the direction of ad hoc, but let's and then you said some other things which we need to examine. So ad hoc means what? So everybody understands again. Ad hoc, who who said it first? Non administration. Yeah, the I I guess you take take make be concrete. The ICC is a federation of national chambers of commerce. which was created in 1921, just after World War I, which was a particularly nasty war. Uh, how many millions of, was it, three million? Young Frenchmen, I don't know how many English, and similar atrocious numbers, and, and, and died in great suffering. And so, that since that was the war to end all wars, as President Wilson said, um, 
people thought about how will we make sure that there won't be any more wars. One way to do that is to is for us, all of us, international community, to be stakeholders in each other. And the way to do that is that we're going to sell scissors and you know, distribute scissors and we're going to have business. So I'm not going to do anything to hurt him because he's selling my scissors. So international trade, international business, globalization, you know, starting after World War I. Um, and uh, the International Chamber of Commerce was created. And one of the first things they did because they recognize this business, and if we're going to have international trade, he doesn't want to come to the Finnish courts and vice versa. So we will create this thing, an arbitration court. Okay. Um, most of you know this already. It's, it's a confusing word, because you think it's an arbitration court. Court sounds like the place you go to have your dispute decided. Yes, but you think you're going to have a dispute decided by the court. In the arbitration world, it's a misnomer. There is an international arbitration court of the International Chamber of Commerce, which is located in Paris. But what it does is limited. It's actually not a court. It's a secretariat. So it does a couple of things. It puts out arbitration rules, because um, unlike us two yokels, who don't have a clue what we're talking about, except we know that if we don't like each other's courts, et cetera, et cetera. So they have thought about us. And they have put down a set of rules for once we have agreed to their arbitration, what will happen in the arbitration? And since they do this all the time, they can draft these rules. And when they see something wrong with them, they improve them. And there are new additions coming out now and now. now and then. So you have a set of rules. So the two of us, in our pidgin English, don't have to put down how the arbitration is going to run. All we have to do is say, ICC arbitration, Geneva, we're done. That's a good service. That's what the Secretariat does. So that's what the ICC does. Then they name arbitrators. What else would you want them to do? To review awards? You might. Then they're deciding the case. Is that what we want? Kind of controversial. I mean, you will, not, you will know the names of the arbitrators. We might have three arbitrators. We might have one arbitrator. And that's, those are the person we face. If some bureaucrats in Paris are going to you know, nameless people are going to be reviewing these awards, maybe that's not what we want. But we can, maybe, let's, we can talk about that some more. What else? For a venue. Hmm? A venue. Well, we picked Geneva, but you're right. Maybe, maybe we didn't pick it. So they would pick the venue for us if we hadn't done it. What else? So we've got, they're making these rules, and they're naming the arbitrators, and they might pick the so venue. They administer the whole process for you. What are the arbitrators doing? Team's man. They decide the process. They decide the outcome. Yeah. Uh, that's not a good idea. I, I think you want the arbitrators who know the case to, to decide how it's going to be run. Uh, please. Yeah? I said please. Do you decide the please? Please. Yeah. Why is that? Why is that important? One of the bodies are bankrupt. Well, what's the alternative? The arbitrators could decide I'm the chairman of the tribunal. Why don't you be working hard in your case? How much do you think it's worth? <laughs> um, so the institution decides on scales of compensation for arbitrators. There are two famous ways of doing this. 
and we can spend the rest of the evening talking about which one is better, and we won't. One is ad valorem, and the other one is by time spent. So depending on, if you go to the ICC, it's ad valorem. You have a $10 million dispute, they look at their schedule. If it looks like a really difficult case, they will do it on the higher range of the scale. If it's a very easy one, they, they try to figure out something about the case. But it's a scale which is based on the percentage of the amount in dispute. So it's $10 million, they multiply by zero, you know, not 0.7%, they come out and you, know, you should pay up a deposit, which might be increased if the case becomes difficult and whatever, but you pay a deposit of so much, which is the multiplier effect of the ad valorem. Um, this is great and this is awful. And this is great because you know how much it's going to cost. Uh, it's great because there's no incentive on the arbitrators to churn, you know, keep working and working and working because they get the same, you know, more or less they can't be assured. They may as well do it fast. Uh, but it's awful because it doesn't correspond to the value of the work done. And what if you have a really simple case? Was there a force majeure or not? One thing happened, big storm. So you're going to hear, how, how long are you going to hear about the storm? Arbitrators are going to decide whether it was a force majeure or not, and it's $100 million. So you multiply it, and the arbitrators get this windfall. So it's, it's, it's indefensible. OK, so we, the other system is time spent on the case. And so you, that would be the LCA, the London Court of International Arbitration. Um, and that is uh, terrible, and it's great. It's great because it's absolutely fair. You pay people for what they're actually doing. It's awful because, let's say, you get some retired guy who's got nothing else to do. Jeez, <laughs> I, I, I got a good hourly rate here, and I've already got my pension. I'll just keep this thing going to kingdom come. It doesn't happen very much, but that's the kind of thing that people might say. I like the ICC. Yeah, it's security and incentive to, for efficiency and so forth. So those are, the, those are the two things. What else does the institution do? that you want them to do for you? Yes? To help enforce the, the <laughs> words. How can they do that? Well, they, they create uh, sanctions for the members that sign the... Ah, that's an idea. Remember what, you know what, you know what uh, Stalin said about the Pope? <coughs> hmm? They put their name on the award. <laughs> what does Stalin say about the Pope? How many divisions does he have? Uh, the ICC, you know, they don't have bailiffs and they can't go out and force you to do that. But you have the idea. Maybe early on it was thought in the ICC back in the 1920s that um, peer pressure, other businessmen would hear about the fact that you don't respect the award. Now we live in a very large, confusing world, and, and you know, people are not paying attention to every single arbitration award that comes down. There are probably 5,000 a day. And, and you know, we're all not waiting to see if so-and-so is going to pay the award. So it's a bit, <coughs> maybe a bit unrealistic, unless you're in a very small economic milieu. And there are large disputes which are very famous, and people do pay attention to them, and you get a reputation. So that might help a little bit. But there's one more thing that you kind of need to add to the list of things we want the institution to do. Admin procedure. Hmm? admin and procedure for receiving evidence, getting documents Well, we talked here. about that, and whether it should be an institution or the arbitrators. Choose the uh, rules. Hmm? Choose the rules. Choose the rules. No, they have the rules. ICC has its rules. We set up the tribunal. 
Yeah, we said that. Name the arbitrators. They'll help you if something goes wrong with your arbitrator. Aha, that was it. Remove the arbitrators. Misconduct. Or you discover. Now, thank God you discovered before the arbitration is over. The arbitrator did not disclose that he is he is a brother-in-law of one of the parties. And therefore prejudice against the other, right? Um, so we want to have that. Okay, we get all of that with an institution. The institution supervises the process. The alternative is ad hoc arbitration. So there's no institution. So what rules are we going to use? What is that? The parties who choose and if they don't decide by default, the arbitrators who have chosen yeah. for them. In, in, in arbitration, international arbitration especially, always think contract, rules, law. <coughs> contract, rules, law. Contract, rules, law. What's going to happen? You have an arbitration. What do you do next? You're working in a law firm. You're working on an arbitration case. What's the first thing you do? To find out what's going to happen, you look at the applicable, you look at the contract, whatever the parties say. And sometimes the parties have said a few things. So you know it's Geneva. Sometimes they go further. Parties are kind of crazy sometimes. They start putting in weird stuff. All witnesses have to stand up when they testify because that way they won't talk so much. <laughs> yeah, um, and the next thing is, or, or they say each party will bear its own costs because they don't like the idea of, of having costs at the end because they want a friendly thing. Or the opposite, the loser has to pay everything. They, they'll specify some things that occur to the bright people negotiating the contracts. I say this with a bit of cynicism because they're actually usually better off leaving it to professionals who have made rules in the middle rules that some institution has thought would be good for arbitration and you just sign up to them. Saves you all that all that drafting in the contract. But then on the other side of the rules is the law. Remember I said countries could simply outlaw arbitrations. So you have to look at the law. And the law might say, okay, we agree with you can have arbitration. Um, and arbitrations can be final with regard to all and all issues of fact, but not, re not with regard to law. Then you get to appeal to the courts. That's an old-fashioned, that's dying out now. It's, it's sort of awful because you never, you never get, you know, what's an issue of fact, what's an issue of law? And, and, and you didn't want to be in court, and here you are in court. It really doesn't work in international arbitration. But that's one way of doing it. Or you can say, we agree to arbitration, we, we allow arbitration, we allow awards to be final, we will enforce awards, but, not with regard to issues about competition, not regard to landlord and tenant, because you're unequal bargaining position, not with regard to distribution agreements, that's the Belgians. I haven't met a Belgian who could explain to me how that started, but that's the way it is, and the Belgian parliament has never thought of changing it. Arbitration under distribution agreements like ours, we couldn't do it in Belgium because it's illegal, it's against public policy in Belgium for some unexplainable reason. That's the law. So you have to look at the law too. That's always the triad when you try to analyze something. In ad hoc arbitration, the absolutely pure ad hoc form of arbitration is just the first one, the contract. 
So we will sit there in our arrogance and think that we can imagine everything that's going to happen and we actually write it out in a contract. It's deadly. We're done. We've done our deal. We're ready to sign it, drink our champagne, and now we're so pedantic and arrogant that we're sitting there, we're going to write out everything that could happen if we have a dispute, and I promise you, we will miss something really important. And yet, some people really like ad hoc arbitration because they don't want to pay the institution. When you go to the ICC, you have to pay the arbitrators, but you also pay an administrative fee to the ICC because they're actually, you know, they actually have to have, they have a staff, so they have to pay the staff. The staff has been hired to deal with arbitration. So if you go for an ad hoc arbitration, you don't have the ICC to pay, you just pay the arbitrators. Is this a good idea? What happens? Okay, we have an arbitration, we have an ad hoc arbitration. We agree that there's not going to be any institution. So we just sign a clause saying, if we have a dispute, it's going to be resolved by arbitration in Geneva. No institution. Does this work? Sure. There are, there are laws about arbitration in Geneva. And so that will mean that we will have whatever, whatever happens in Geneva to people who agree to arbitration. <coughs> and then we're actually going to end up reading French as we read the French, uh, the cantonal, uh, the, the code of civil procedure of the canton of Geneva that will have something about arbitration. And that's what we're going to have, the result of the contract that we sign. But how is the arbitration tribunal going to be named? We've done this bright thing. We've eliminated the ICC, so we've saved some money. Now, how how is the arbitration tribunal going to be named? The national law will have something about appointment of arbitrators. Well, how do you suppose it's going to happen? Well, what's the easy way to name a tribunal? The courts want clients. What? I pick a French guy, you pick a Finnish guy, they agree on the third guy. Yeah, or the two of us agree together. Oh, we agree on one guy. Just the two of us. We, you know, this is a little business. So that's good. But now we have a dispute, and you know, it's sort of like the special submission agreement. It doesn't happen very often, and so now we have a dispute, and so we can't even agree on who should be the arbitrators. If we were in the ICC arbitration, there's no problem. You just send the file into the ICC, and they will name the arbitrator. What are we going to do in Geneva with our ad hoc laws? So we look at the, at the we look at the law in Geneva. Well, what's that going to say? You should be able to figure that out. What's this? What's any law going to say? a law in a country which accepts arbitration and sees an arbitration agreement, and now there is an arbitration, and the parties can't agree on the arbitrators. Who's going to court with appointing arbitrators? Okay. Which national court are we talking about now? The one for the arbitration. So it's Geneva. Oh. Are they going to do it? Well, they have to. Probably the procedural really? laws, whatever we want to say. You, you've just said. <laughs> That's what, what? what happens. <laughs> I said that the Swiss law says that. So you haven't said anything about this. I mean, well, we've agreed to arbitration. We've, we've agreed to arbitrate in Geneva. Let's you know. Let's watch out for professional negligence here. You're a bit frightened now. Here's a good opportunity to commit professional negligence. We agreed. Now, that's just the two of us, so it's okay, you know, we can, we can do all kinds of stuff. But what if it's, each of us has hired one of you to be our lawyers? And we say we want arbitration, and you agree, and you negotiate, and you put in this contract, ad hoc arbitration in Geneva. 
Is the Swiss judge going to name an, an arbitrator? The Swiss law says that, the Geneva law says that. Is it going to work? There might be a jurisdictional problem. The Swiss law is there for people who are subject to Swiss jurisdiction. Can we just decide them? Well, actually, you know, he and I don't pay taxes in Switzerland. We don't pay the salaries of the judges. So he's going to sue me, and he we can't agree on the arbitrator. And he goes in front of the Swiss judge and says, you know, please, we have this little arbitration. Please take five minutes and name an arbitrator. And I, you know, of course, he has to send a copy to me. I come right in. Your Honor, stop, stop. This is an abusive procedure. I never agreed to arbitrate with him. Yeah, we have this contract, but he forged it. And you know we have to have an expert, and the judge says, well, what am I doing with you two French Finnish? I've got nothing to do with you people. Go away. <laughs> I'm serious. So back in the 1950s, there were a lot of oil concession agreements that referred to international arbitration in Switzerland. Why does this happen? You're cut and paste. Professional negligence. People got in the habit of, you know, this is what you do if you're an oil lawyer, and you have a concession with King Idris of Libya for zillions of dollars, and there's a dispute, and you're going to have, no, you're not going to pay the ICC, no, no, it's, you're going to have ad hoc in Switzerland, and let's ratchet it really high, if there's a dispute, the arbitrator is going to be named by the president of the Swiss Federal Tribunal, and nobody checked the likelihood of the president of the Swiss Federal Tribunal wanting to be involved in a dispute between Atlantic Richfield and the Kingdom of Libya, answer is, not really. And so what do you got now? You have an arbitration clause which is unworkable. You have no arbitration clause. And you have just been kicked out of Libya under the contract that you signed with King Idris, which is now run by Colonel Gaddafi, and you don't have an arbitration clause. So you can come to Colonel Gaddafi's courts in Libya and ask for your $100 million. Good luck. <laughs> Maybe I'm unfair to him, and maybe he would welcome your suit, and he would he would not molest the judge, and the judge would uh, give you an award, and maybe it wouldn't be enforced. And how many treaties do you think Libya has for the enforcement of Libyan judges? So it's a disaster, and uh, the lawyer will be sued. I saw a lot of those when I when I first started practicing law. Just yeah, when when you read chapter one of arbit any arbitration book, you know, you read chapter one. Takes you one hour, and then a year later you get into practice and you see that somebody's actually done this in a hundred million dollar contract. Happens all the time. So you want it would be better if we think about some improvement of the ad hoc arbitration clause. Because we don't want to have to go to the judge to ask him, pretty please, to name an arbitrator. Because you know now we have a dispute. And he wants to sue me. And I'm going to say, I'm sorry, the Swiss courts don't have jurisdiction. And yeah, uh, this is a distribution agreement. And actually, the Swiss, you know, nobody has thought about this. But French law is kind of like Belgian law, in my opinion, if you really understand it right. And I said, this thing cannot be arbitrated. Uh, it goes against whatever. And, and, and suddenly the judge has a problem. No matter how stupid my defense is, it's no longer five minutes to name an arbitrator. It's a real case. And the judge says, I don't have any jurisdiction. This is a contract to be performed in France. He's French, she's Finnish. No jurisdiction. So, and he'll make a decision. He'll say, I'll, I, I will, after all, appoint an arbitrator. 
or I refuse to appoint an arbitrator. Whichever one of us is disappointed now appeals. And now we have three judges faced with the same problem. And this will be the lowest thing on their priority, I promise you. So three years later, we find out, next one, and off we go to the Supreme Court. So, not good. Somebody thought of this. You said it. Unsatral. Unsatral. The United Nations Commission for International Trade Law in 1976, when international arbitration started really picking up speed, um, thought about the fact that there were a lot of people who didn't know much about these institutions and really didn't like the idea that you had to pay them an administrative fee. So they said, people seem to like ad hoc clauses. They don't know how to draft them because they sit there trying to imagine everything that could happen and they fail to do so. So we, UNCITRAL, will do it for them. And we will, we will provide for what happens if they can't name the arbitral tribunal. And they don't have to go to court. So if you look at the UNCITRAL rules, they have all sorts of rules about how to conduct the arbitration, how to pick the arbitrators. Each side gets to appoint an arbitrator. And if they can't agree on who should be the presiding arbitrator, they can go off to The Hague, to an institution called the Permanent Court of Arbitration. Uh, and it's a little bit complicated. The Secretary General of the Permanent Court of Arbitration will pick an institution which will have the sole function of naming the third arbitrator. So at least you don't have to go to court, and you have no risk of a refusal of jurisdiction. It will work. A little bit tedious, but it will. Or, if you like, you can actually put in the clause. Um, we don't want ICC arbitration, we want unsettled arbitration. But, if there's a requirement to name the third arbitrator, the ICC will do it. So that is a kind of a trick question because when people see initials, LCIA, ICC, UNCITRAL, they think it's all the same thing, and in fact this is an opposition. ICC, LCIA, AAA, American Arbitration Association, CRICA, Cairo Regional International Arbitration Center, Singapore Center, Hong Kong Center, all of these are arbitral institutions. And the opposition is UNCITRAL, which is a standardized form of ad hoc arbitration which UNCITRAL has generously put at the disposal of the international community. If you really don't want an institutional clause, you can have an, an UNCITRAL clause, which kind of works better than just saying Geneva and uh, facing the great unknown of what the courts will do. So uh, somebody mentioned that we might want a review of the award by the arbitral institution. This is not very popular in commerce generally. But it's not, it's, it's not at all a silly idea. Because we might agree on a really quick arbitration. We might, we might want really fast, cheap arbitration. Um, unless it's really awful decision and somebody is extremely offended. And this might be in, in, in areas where there are lots of disputes High volume, low value. So I lose a case. It's not going to kill me. I'll win a couple and I'll lose a couple. Insurance business, a, a bit of that. You know, low value insurance contracts. Insurance companies are not, you know, they don't go ballistic when they lose a case. It happens every day. They win some, they lose some, and they average it out, and it's all done. 
uh, it's all done in, 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 uh, with our computers to figure out what we need to do to do basically to stay in the black. Um, commodities trading, potato wholesalers across the world. They have international business too, and they don't want each other's courts. So they have they have potato traders of Europe arbitration rules, uh, which is in Hamburg. They have um, fur coat. Yes, Traders Association Arbitration. That's in Denmark. And you know, these things can be 5,000 euro contracts. And there's a dispute, and you know, I'm right and you're wrong, and I, you know, we have a dispute, and it's not going to be a drama if I lose, but we can't agree, and we just need somebody to decide. So somebody decides, I lose, I pay, fine. But once in a while, there's a big case. They're a huge shipment, and I really think that the arbitrator who was appointed, who's not a lawyer, who doesn't even need this, has a look, feels the fur coat, smells the potatoes, whatever, makes a decision. Um, here's a really big case, and I get one of these guys, and I have legal arguments. And this is big, and this is serious, and I want it to be heard very carefully. So you'll often find in these kinds of institutions, for trade institutions, that they have two-tiered arbitrations. So if somebody is really grievously offended, you can appeal inside. So you have a sole arbitrator hearing the first decision, he's not a lawyer, and it's kind of like, they call it look sniff, uh, arbitrations. He just gets an impression, he listens a bit, and a couple of hours later he renders a decision. Very often, not even a hearing, you don't see him, you send your documents to Hamburg or whatever, and you get a decision by email, that's it. Um, all fine under the New York Convention enforceable in 150 countries, but parties might not think that this is so ideal if, if things get really serious. So they reserve the possibility of an internal appeal. It's important. Reserving the possibility of appealing in front of the courts is not at all what we have in mind. We quickly agreed to go to Geneva to have an ICC arbitration in English. We wouldn't agree to go to Geneva to be in the Geneva courts. You know, that from your point of view, that's French. And from my point of view, yeah, it's French, but I have to get a Geneva lawyer now, and I don't know anything about the Swiss courts and so forth. So it's not, that's not what we want. But we can have an arbitration system with a possibility of appeal. Some people who, um, in, in the world of large contracts, multi-million dollar contracts, you don't have this kind of system. But occasionally somebody will lose an ICC arbitration and say, hey, we ought to have a two-tiered system. That's not the way it is. AAA, ICC, LCIA, all the famous arbitration institutions don't have a two-tiered system. What they tell you is, if you want maximum security, opt for three arbitrators. If you want it fast, pick one arbitrator, and that will save time and money. But they don't have this two-tiered system. But that is a possibility. Um, in unsatural arbitration, Ad hoc arbitration, you know, this, the single acronym in this category of ad hoc. Uh, one of the problems is that you don't have a policing of the arbitrator's fees. So if you look at the unsatural rules, it says that the arbitrators set their fees. Hey, you trusted them. You trust them to decide your $50, $50 million dispute. So you should trust them to impose on you the duty to pay them what they think they're worth. Personally, I, after many years of experience, I can tell you, I think this system is absolutely odious. 
Because people I respect very highly, to be honest, beginning with myself, there is something where when the, when the question is put to me, now we get to the point in the procedure where the tribunal will inform the parties of how much they have to pay in for the cost of the arbitration and the fees of the arbitrators. And I start thinking about how, you know, what would be the right fees for me? What's the value of what I'm contributing to the parties? This is really funny how I can't trust myself. Uh, because I know that if I asked a friend of mine who is not the arbitrator in the case, what he thinks of that case, it's somehow my number is always higher. And I don't think I'm the worst. I've seen some people who I really would trust, with, not with my life, but I would really trust with my client's $50 million dispute, but I would not trust with deciding how much they're getting by the hour. Um, <laughs> I'll tell you a little story. Uh, there was a... There was um, a large dispute between U.S. and Italian automobile companies. They had a joint venture, it went bust, huge damages, great acrimony, great bitterness. And one of them wanted to launch sort of terrorism claim. So it started an arbitration and asked for $2 billion, which is kind of inconceivable. Uh, uh, if you knew anything about the size of the contract. But you can't stop people from making a claim in arbitration like in courts. So here's this $2 billion claim. They had agreed on arbitration in Paris under the rules of Uncetrol. So months go by, this is a very tense case. These are people who are extremely angry at each other, huge law firms on both sides. So it takes a while to jockey and like shadow box and before you have the arbitral tribunal. Finally, there is the arbitral tribunal. And uh, I was one of the many lawyers on one side. So we went to see, actually, to get the real moral flavor of the story. First, we went together to see some people who could be the, the presiding arbitrator. Each side named arbitrator. Now, who is going to be the presiding arbitrator of this huge case? So we had some names, and this one seemed promising. So all of the lawyers together, both sides, it has to be both sides, right? Because this is going to be the presiding arbitrator. Go to see the presiding arbitrator, who was a former chairman of the French bar. And his English was surprisingly good. He was a very senior guy. He was a former chairman of the French bar. And I, 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 I'd known him for a few years, but I didn't know he spoke such good English. And he was very charming, sort of Maurice Chevalier accent. And, and he was <laughs> American and English lawyers. And, 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 and they kind of really liked him. And he said, and? There came a point, because these were sophisticated lawyers, and we, we all knew about this business about fees of arbitrators, and you know, they get to fix it themselves. So since we're talking about him jointly, about him being the president, at some point we agreed, we would say, so uh, what do you charge? <laughs> Hush. And he says, Maurice Chevalier, you know, it's a funny thing. I, I was the chairman of the French bar. Uh, <laughs> when you have been Le Batonnier, people think you're very good. I'm not better than I used to be, which wasn't very good. Yeah, very nice. Um, but I am, the, I am the former Batonnier, and so now, you know, I don't do usual cases anymore. Uh, I'm called in on very difficult cases. I have become, he says, I've become, I don't know how to say English, I've become a pompier de luxe, which means, <laughs> which means uh, anybody, can anybody translate that one? Pompier de luxe? 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Luxury fire. I, I put out fire. I'm the, yeah. like the, I'm the Rolls Royce fire brigade. It's very nice. So everyone. So all the Americans are like, what do you say? What do you say? What's that? So you get the joke. And I'm like, oh, this guy is so charming. So, oh yeah, you asked me how much. Yes, it's so you see, I'm a senior guy, and, and and I have to tell you that this is the way it is. I don't know why people pay me this, but it's 2,500 francs an hour. This is a long time ago. So that was a lot, but what you would expect from a French atelier, and so we looked at each other and talked, and yeah, okay, this is, that's kind of seemed like the, that's on the high side, but you know, like the top QC in London at the time, that's what we do. Now we go into the arbitration, and it's the answer to our rules, and the tribunal sets its fees. So now he's there with all the two others who have already been picked, and comes the time to discuss well, actually, we talk about the procedure, and how long do you want for the first legal pleadings, and how many witnesses do you want, and how many legal hearings, and it's all very urbane and professional and clever and intelligent. And then we're done, and this charming Frenchman says, hmm, the tribunal would like to meet with uh, the two senior lawyers on each side. And everyone looks at each other, and I know this. I knew what that meant. We're going to go in a little corner and talk about money, <laughs> um, <laughs> which we did. And the this charming batonier suddenly had lost all of his marbles and said, "You know, I've been looking at close it off. I've been looking at the ancestral rules, and it says that um, the tribunal will fix the fees." And uh, fortunately, you know, so that's how I've been embarrassed because. Of course, I'm in a position of power vis-a-vis -vis you, so I'm, yeah. fortunately the ancestral rules gives me some guidance as to how it's fixed. So it's fixed on the qualifications, based on the qualifications of the arbitrators, their professional standing, <coughs> on the magnitude of the case and the responsibility of the arbitrators given the gravity of the case. So he says, so you see, it's very simple. I told you uh, my fees are 2,500 per hour. And so I looked at this, and I looked at the criteria. And so on the qualifications, I had it for myself. But my co-arbitrators are very distinguished people. So this is a tribunal of top people. And as for the amount, it's $2 billion. It's a very large amount. So that's 2 times 2,500. And the responsibility we're engaging is very great. So that's 3 times 2,500 per hour for each of us. <laughs> OK, that's not good. It's, that's not good. Now get the worst part. One of the parties made a terrorist claim, wanting to, this is, you know, we live in a rough world, this is to squeeze the other party. And so the tribunal, this guy lost his marbles and thinks that this is his, you know, like luxury, luxury fire brigade, this is luxury retirement. So, this outrageous amount of money, which is, he told <coughs> us it was 2,500 an hour. There is just no way any reasonable person would say that means 2,500 times every, one, every single adjective I can find in this book. <laughs> um, but the claimant party said instantly, oh, your worshipfulness, are you sure that's enough? So what is the other side going to say? It suited the litigation tactics of one of the parties. So you have, you know, you talk about moral hazard. You don't want this in, in arbitration. And that's the problem of, ad, one of the problems of ad hoc arbitrations. Um, in ad hoc arbitrations, what happens if you need to remove an arbitrator? You can't go to the ICC. There's no ICC. You have a complaint. You're going to complain to two of the arbitrators about the third. 
You can do that. And if you have two honest people, and they might do the right thing. But maybe it's their colleague, and like, they might not really agree with you. And if you start hassling an arbitrator, if you want to kill an arbitrator, be sure you kill him. Because if you fail, you'll be there to decide your case. <laughs> we decide. You got to do it. So uh, you want this decision to be done right, and you don't have an institution. So what, what is going to happen ad hoc to remove the arbitrator? You go to court, then you have a jurisdictional issue, and the judge in Switzerland says, hey, you, you think I don't want to name arbitrators? Ten times more, I don't want to remove arbitrators. That's controversial, and I have to have hearings, and it's awful. I won't do it. I'll appeal. Fine, be my guest. Two years later, no. The nightmare scenario. Just what you thought you didn't get in arbitration. You're not going to court, and here you end up in court because you've opted for ad hoc arbitration. So that's there are a number of disadvantages there, uh, which uh, uh, which are obvious. Might take that much longer to constitute the tribunal because there isn't a system uh, like the ones that, that an institute will do. The uh, enforcement of awards today, I'm afraid, you cannot count on arbitral institutions to enforce the award. They don't have battalions. But there is still something about the cachet of a well-known institution. So by now, if you come to the United States with a European arbitration award, the United States does not have one single treaty for the enforcement of judgments. But it has signed the New York Convention. And it will enforce awards. As though they're a final decision of the Supreme Court of the United States. It will, it will be enforced. Very limited exceptions. There are some exceptions. Of course, if there's a violation of due process, if the arbitrator hasn't heard one side, some ridiculous things like that. If the US judge sees an ICC award, he says, ICC, yeah, I heard of that. That's those people in Paris. They have 700 cases a year, whatever it is, and I've seen lots of these awards already, and he feels comfortable. So it's a known institution. That's about as much as you can get uh, in that re uh, with, with regard to enforceability. But as I said, they don't have. Um, they don't have uh, battalions. For next week, what happened to your reading for this class? Did you do your reading? What reading? No? All right, well, I, I, I sent from... Uh, I was I was in Bahrain last week and I sent up by email. They received it. Who's the good student? Who received it? Oh, see, you know this the thing that we're doing on two evenings here is an entire course, and there's reading for the course, and it's not a lot, but you're supposed to have done reading already for you. Yeah? So, no. What you want us to read? Somebody please inform us how it can be done. It exists. It's on Moodle. It's on Moodle. And you have given the chapters? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. It's okay. All right. Um, we're. You know what I'm looking at here as, as I'm going through the class? I'm, I'm just looking at the exam I'm going to give you. <laughs> That's all I need. So we're halfway through the course. Did you think you learned anything? Actually, I think you can answer these questions. Uh, for next time, it would be good, because next time it's going to get more complicated. 
Next time we're going to talk about the enforcement of arbitration awards, how the New York Convention actually works, and what are the few exceptions to it. So what professional lawyers have to look out for not, not to allow an arbitration to screw up so that it's not enforceable, because it's really supposed to work, and it's very exceptional that it doesn't. So this is serious if you if you allow an arbitration to get out of whack. So there is a chapter in the reading materials uh, about the New York Convention. And the attachment to that chapter is the text of the New York Convention itself. You'll be really happy to hear that the New York Convention is extraordinarily short. And most of it you don't have to read. So articles 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 seven. You're done. So read them 20 times. <laughs> because they're not easy to read. And if you read them fast, you will have understood absolutely nothing. For example, as you go through it, try to imagine an international arbitration. If you can't imagine anything else, just think about our French uh, Finnish thing. And we have an arbitration in Geneva. So there's Finland, there's France, there's Geneva, and we have this contract. As you read the New York Convention, think about how many possible national laws might be referred to in the New York Convention. The laws of the two parties, Finnish and French. The law of the place of arbitration, Swiss. The law of the place of enforcement. I suppose if he loses, it might be Finland, but not necessarily. Maybe he has money in New York. If I lose, it might be France, but not necessarily. It could be others. So. Read through and see that. A couple of questions for you as you read. And you won't get the answers tonight. You find the answers yourself. The New York Convention is misnamed. It's called the New York Convention on the in Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards. That's a very long title, and it's too short. It misses something very important. So read the thing and figure out what really important thing that is missing from that title. And you might have thought, when you said again, New York Convention on the Recognition and Enforcement of Foreign Arbitral Awards. You might, you might think it's too long. Why does it say Recognition and Enforcement? A little, little question to see who the brightest kid in the room is. Why do you need Recognition and Enforcement? How are you going to have enforcement without recognition? It can be vice versa, recognition without enforcement. Because? Um, declaratory awards. Or? Uh, or? Or you can use it as an evidence that I have the evidence. Yeah. yeah, yeah, because? Declaratory awards, yes, but you can, you can really, really simple. The defendant won. Yeah. Okay, the claim claim is missed, and that kind of that could be important to me. I'm I'm the happy defendant. I don't want to be sued again, so I'm not interested in enforcing the award. But if you sue me again, I want the award to be recognized. So all right. So it's not the title is not too long, and it is too short. So figure out why that is. Then um, you will figure out that I'll I'll give you a little 
10-minute lecture at the beginning of how the New York Convention came about. What was wrong with the world before? Why was it necessary? Okay, it's, it's in the book, and, but I'll, I'll give you a, a slightly different gloss on it. Um, then you, you'll quickly understand that Article 5 is one of the big ones, often litigated articles of the New York Convention. It's the one that tells you what the exceptions are. Article 4 says all awards shall be enforced. And, and Article 5 says accept. Right? So, yeah, this is good for young lawyers, like basic calisthenics exercise. <laughs> Article 5 lists the exceptions to enforcement of awards. It's a list of exceptions to enforcement of awards. It's divided into two parts, Article 5.1 and Article 5.2. Why? That's my question. It's a list of exceptions. Why is there a 5.1 and why is there a 5.2? Just figure it out by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> For most people, it takes a while. Um, then, so you know what we'll be talking about, we'll talk about enforcement, and then we're going to get into something which I couldn't have done today because I'm a bit jet-lagged and you always have to be in a really good mood for this. Jurisdiction to decide jurisdiction and autonomy of arbitration clauses. Uh, that's really neat because if you can figure it out, you'll be smarter than 80% of very experienced practicing lawyer in the international field. If you walk up to them and said, please tell me, what is the difference between jurisdiction to decide jurisdiction and autonomy of the arbitration clause that will lack? And you say, I'll give you a break. Just tell me what is the idea of the independence of an arbitration clause. Please give me the definition. And they'll be extremely irritated. So we're going to try to ace that in about 20 minutes. And it will be really helpful if you try to do it on your own by doing your reading before that. And then I think we will have only two other little things to do, which is, it's been observed that uh, these arbitration institutions, though they try their best, have not thought of all of the rules that you need to come up with to stop the mischief of modern lawyers. So you need a little bit more. And the IBA, the International Bar Association, which is not an arbitration institution, does not run arbitration, but again, as a service to humanity, the IBA has thought of some rules of evidence which tries to combine common law, civil law, Sharia law, Martian law, and everything uh, to see what it is a decent system of justice in arbitration. And that's kind of an interesting thing to look at. And so nowadays you can agree to ICC arbitration with kind of a, on steroids. You know, ICC arbitration plus IBA rules of evidence is done very often uh, in, in major arbitrations and it would be good to get a little bit of a feeling for that. And secondly, a little two extra things, Art, we'll talk about the model law. The model law is not arbitration rules. Remember, contract, rules, law. The model law is another service to humanity by the United Nations. It's the UN model law. They already gave us the arbitration rules. They've also given, given us the model law, which is a law proposed to all the states of the world. An arbitration law designed specifically for international arbitration. 
And lo and behold, it's been a great success. Lots of countries have adopted it, and lots of other countries have inspired themselves of it. They say, oh, we're not ready to adopt a block, stock, and barrel, but we'll find some good things in it. And so the world is getting to be a somewhat more uniform place because of the influence of the, of the model law. We'll talk about only one thing, Article 16 of the model law. Try to figure that out, and that will be a great step in advance. So I think it's the same same time. I think it will be 6.30. When is the next week? See you then. Thanks for your time.